Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Does it surprise you that four out of five Americans admit on a survey, albeit that they suffer from some level of stress? Does that surprise you? The American Institute of Stress says that in a common year in the United States, over $100 billion are distributed to help people deal with their stress. The American Academy of Family Physicians estimate that two-thirds of those whom they see in their private practices, those people are there and their visit has been prompted by stress-related symptoms. I woke up this morning earlier than normal, and when I did, I turned my phone on, and when I turned it on, I punched Google, and there's this long list of articles. Do you get that on your phone? I've never really compared notes with people about that. At the top, there was an article posted today by Psychology Today, the secular periodical that deals with issues regarding to sound mental health and how to help maintain or attain that kind of health. And the article was titled something like this, Eight Foods That Can Cause You to Be Distressed or Depressed. Well, I was interested in reading because it was early in the morning and I felt quite distressed because I had to come here and talk to you all today. (laughs) And so I looked at it and I began to look at the list. Cake, cookies, chips, breakfast cereals, bread, and then this this was kind of gross really, this next one. Reconstructed meat products. No, it was reconstituted, not reconstructed. I thought of spam, and some of you are spam lovers, so don't get mad at me if that happens to be your M.O. And things that were snacks that were in bags, basically. And then I began to review what I ate yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday morning, I had the breakfast of choice for me. I had some... Orville Rickenbacker Simply Salt popcorn. I ate the whole bag. I don't even stop the whole bag. That was my breakfast. And I topped it off with a kickstart, which is a mild energy drink. And one of the things I left off that was on the list, the eighth thing was sugary drinks. And I rationalize this when I drink a kickstart two ways. I need a little start in the morning, and I'm not a coffee drinker, so I can drink a Kickstart, and they're 96 milligrams. I'm telling you stuff you'll never forget. I know. 96 milligrams of caffeine, which is the rough equivalent of one cup of coffee. So I rationalize that. But 
It only has 80 calories in 16 ounces. It's got sugar in it, but not that much, okay? But I ate that. Then when it came lunchtime, I had some pretzels, and I found some chili con queso. It was so good. I'm telling you, it was so good. And I'm flunking the test here. No wonder I was a little down today when I woke up. I ate three slices of bread, toasted two. I was only going to eat two. It was so good I had to have one more and put butter on it, you know. It was phenomenal. Then for dinner, I had Little Caesars. And you'll be proud of me, thin crust pepperoni pizza. I was limiting my intake of bread. I didn't even know I was ensuring good mental health when I did that, alleviating stress. Then I went to a reception held for a couple who recently gotten engaged. They're going to be married on December the 2nd or 3rd. I can't remember. It's Billy Rendag, who grew up in our church, and it was a great time for me to meet his fiancée, and I ate tacos. I got some protein at least in yesterday. But my point being, we are people who do things that contribute to our stress. But the good news is the Bible is the most relevant book ever thought of. Every other suggestion, whether it's psychology today or the American Academy of Family Physicians or whatever stress institutes there may be in America around the world, they pale in comparison to the wisdom in the Word of God. And Jesus is talking to us today through the book of John. So if you go to where we left off last week, the sixth chapter, 14th chapter, I'm sorry, of John, we're going to look at verses 27 to the end of the chapter. So that's John chapter 14, beginning with verse 27. I will comment a bit as I work my way through this passage of Scripture, and then we'll look at more aspects of it as the message and the teaching unfolds. Verse 27, this is a key verse. Peace I leave with you. The word translated I leave is a word which was used in law courts in the day of Jesus. And the word meant I bequeath. You know what it means to bequeath something to someone in a will? It means that when the will is probated and the judge is presiding over the probation process, that becomes law and the judge assigns whatever is left to whomever it is bequeathed. This is what Christ bequeathed to His apostles. And by virtue of our being followers of Jesus, having been taught, as it were, by the apostles, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, this is our inheritance. Jesus had nothing to give except the cloak on his back. And you remember what happened to that, I assume. What happened when he got to the place of crucifixion? Before they nailed him to the cross, they took the garment off. It was one piece over clothes, and they gambled for it. 
the people who crucified Him. But He did give us this, His peace. His peace is the antidote to the problems which we have. It's rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. And when someone today or in the day of Jesus exchanged that greeting, shalom, it's actually a prayer. May things go well with you in every area of your life. In every way. What a blessing. And that is the idea here. Not just as we as Westerners, when we think of peace, we think of things like a pact or agreement to end hostilities to two, between two opponents. Or we think of it as freedom from fear. That's getting closer to the biblical concept as we're going to see before we finish this verse. But the point is that this peace is extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's the peace that is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We need to latch on to that. We need to think about Jesus. We're going to think about some events in His life that are indicative of His peace. And we need to remember where does He live now? We know He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven to intercede for us. The book of Ephesians 2 talks about that. But that same book of Ephesians and in that same chapter, what we see more than one time, this recurring theme in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where you are if you are a follower of Christ. You are in Him and He is in you. By His Spirit, He indwells us. What a marvelous, marvelous truth. He is the personification of peace. He's in us. My peace I give to you. It's a gift. And it's for everyone who wants to know Jesus and comes to know Jesus. Some of you have known Christ for years and you still struggle mightily with a lack of peace. It's unnecessary that you do. Now all of us, if we were honest, even those of us who have been acquainted with this truth and practiced the tenets of Jesus when it comes to the matter of how to gain and maintain peace, even we find ourselves under stress, do we not? It's easy for us to get sidetracked. And we don't process what happens to us through the lens of the providential provision for protection that God gives us. So we're going to learn how to do that today. This is a very practical teaching of Jesus. And hopefully we will receive what He has for us. He goes on to say in verse 27, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now, Jesus wouldn't use the language He used if He didn't mean it. He would never try to say something to appease the world. Look at it again. Not as the world gives. The world gives us some peace along the way, but it's not lasting, is it? And some of it is counterfeit, as we're going to see. But there is some wisdom that people in the world have drawn 
indirectly in most cases from the Bible, thinking it's something that's unique to them and they have been clever to find it and they're sharing it in hopes that it will genuinely help other people who are stressed out. We know that. But he says he can't even bring himself to say that it's peace. You know, did you notice that? He says here, not as the world gives do I give to you. You can't even mention the word peace because the world can't really give the kind of peace that he and the Father offer us. And he says, then let not your heart be troubled. This should be something that you recognize. Look at verse 1. The beginning of this teaching of Jesus, which is called the upper room discourse for his apostles and by virtue of their putting it in print under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit brought this to their mind, we have this first verse of this chapter, let not your heart be troubled. And we learned when we looked at that, actually the grammar would yield this translation, stop letting your heart be troubled. The Lord wants us not to be troubled. And He gives us the resource in Himself to do that. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now let's look again at the last part of verse 27. Let not your heart be troubled. Stop letting it be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This is a word that's used only here that's translated fearful. Only once in all the New Testament it's used. But it's very important. It's talking about real fear. Not that the other words which are used don't talk about real fear. But this is serious level fear. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Wonderful. Verse 28, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Their hearts were troubled, and they were losing the one they had staked everything on. They had left home and hearth. They left wives and children. They left their careers to follow Jesus. And they asked Jesus in the book of Mark chapter 10, Lord, we've done all this for you. And you're saying that there's nothing in it for us? Well, there's everything in it for us. Not in worldly things, but in things like peace. Can you buy the kind of peace that we've talked about so far? It is something you can't buy. We saw how over $100 billion a year, that's a conservative estimate probably, are spent by people who are trying to buy peace. You can't buy it. Jesus bought it for us. And He embodies it. And He has reserved it for those of us who know Jesus and anybody who does not yet know Christ. When they come to know Christ, this is part of what He gives you. Just a part, but it's a huge part, isn't it? And He talks about how these men, 11 of them, to whom He was giving this teaching, the first to hear it, they were fretting and regretting that Jesus was leaving. But what does Jesus say? If you really knew me, and you really knew where I'm headed, 
you would be rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. And the Father is greater than I. So change your tune. It sounds kind of harsh. And I have the opportunity to be with a lot of families when they lose a loved one. I myself have lost both of my parents and suffered great loss with the departure of each one. But I know they went to be with the Lord, not because they were kin to me or good or anything like that. It's because they had put their faith in Jesus Christ alone and believed what he had to say when he said, therefore, having been justified by faith in me alone, sola Christus, the solas that Caleb is going to be teaching, and I encourage you to go to that teaching beginning a week from tomorrow night. It's because they trusted in Jesus alone and they were made right with God. If you have a loved one who leaves, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind. But I take great comfort in the fact that Paul, when he writes that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does not say we do not grieve at all. He says we just don't grieve like the rest of mankind. So it's not wrong to grieve the loss of a mother or a husband or a child or a grandparent or a good friend. But if they know Jesus Christ, we can have sort of the experience. It's a bittersweet experience, losing a loved one, but knowing that they're with Jesus, no longer hindered by that which took their lives, no longer hindered by their own sin that caused them grief and caused others in their life difficulty. So we need to rejoice when people who know Jesus go to be with the Lord. Many of you are familiar with Mark and Sarah Johnston. The Johnstons were active in our church probably for the better part of a decade. Their kids were born, all three of them, while they were here. Mark got a job opportunity you couldn't turn down in Greenville, Texas, and it was a big promotion and a career move that was helpful to the, him and their family. He moved there. Sarah followed behind not too late. And Sarah received word this month that her father passed away. He was the picture of hell, 73 years old, one year older than I, played tennis every day, had retired from pastoring probably a couple of years ago, still active in the church, Cross Point, a wonderful church that he and his wife Darlene came from Canada to the U.S. to the other border to share the gospel. And he went into the hospital, well, not even a hospital. He went to a, to a clinic where he had ablation done on his heart. And he had complications. And the cardiologist said, we need to serve God with gladness he and his wife and his family, gone. When I spoke to Sarah last week, she's not an overly emotional person, but she broke and wept, and I, I felt for her because she had such a wonderful father. Why would you take him, Lord? Why would you take her? Why would you take them? Lord, why? Because he loves them. And he got them out of here. That's a big deal. 
The Bible says there's a point in a man wants to die and after that comes the judgment. Well, the judgment of this man, because of his faith in Christ, his dependence upon the Lord, is going to be very outstanding because he's in Christ. And we need to understand that the Lord, when He takes someone, it's not His punishing us who are left behind. It's His bringing them home so He can have that unhindered fellowship with them and so that we who know Jesus will gather with them in heaven someday, sooner than we think probably. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Well, it's going to come to pass like pronto, right away. Next day, he's going to get crucified. Then in three days, he's going to be raised from the dead. Then after about seven weeks, he's going to be ascended into heaven, and they don't see him anymore. But that was the plan of the Lord. For Jesus and for these dear brothers who have been used by God to do so much for us by giving us the gospel. Verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. Who might that be? Satan is the ruler of the world. John talks about that in 1 John 5, 19 and he talks about how the evil one, namely Satan, is the ruler of the world. It's not talking about the physical universe. It's talking about the world system. The system that is antagonistic. It's a spiritual system, but it's antagonistic toward God and everything about Jesus and all those who know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Jesus says is that He has nothing on me or no part in what I am about. I'm not under His thumb. He will ultimately answer to me, is what Jesus is saying. But the world may, that the world may know, verse 31, that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. If we were to take time, we can look one place. Look over at verse 10. Look at what Jesus says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. What did Jesus say? Whatever He spoke, it was first given to Him by the Father. He listened attentively, and He took what the Father said, and He passed it on. And He still speaks to us by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And we can hear His voice in the Word of God. And it is that which is the reservoir. His voice, His Word, the Bible as we call it, is the reservoir of faith and the peace that follows when we exercise our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He says at the end, Arise, let us go from here. When I saw that, I thought of the saying, let's roll. Two weeks from today, we'll mark the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And one of the planes which was hijacked was flight number 93, United Airlines. And it left out of New Jersey going 
to San Francisco. It only got to Pennsylvania and it was hijacked. And on that plane, there were brave souls who got together and they got a plan together. They didn't have much time to execute it to take over the plane. You remember the story. And the name that stands out, a man named Beamer. And what did he say? As he led in prayer, they prayed together and they rushed the cabin and then he said, let's roll. He was courageous. A hero gave his life along with others to save a lot of other lives because that plane was charted from every indication for the Capitol building. Can you imagine that airplane barreling into the Capitol building with senators and U.S. representatives there and what kind of havoc that would have wreaked in our country in addition to whatever happened. Let's roll. Jesus was not afraid of what lay ahead, was He? Why? Because He knew who He was trusting. These things we must consider about the peace of God represented in Jesus. First of all, Christ's peace isn't the absence of conflict. We have, as I've already mentioned, the mentality that peace is needed to stop conflict. There's some truth to that, but that's a small understanding of what this means. Think about Jesus. Did Jesus have conflict in His human life? When He was in the womb of Mary, and she was trying to figure out how to tell Joseph that she was with child because she knew she had not been with him. She had not been with any other man. And I'm sure she just worried about how am I going to break this to him. And when he did find out, he did the honorable thing. He could have exposed her and she would have undergone a trial and she could have been stoned. He was going to put her away quietly is what the Scripture says. And then... The angel of the Lord came and said, this child is who Mary says He is. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And Joseph awoke to that reality and made a great foster father for Jesus. What about Jesus' infancy? Herod the Great found out about the birth of the Messiah through the visit from the Magi, and he sent his crack troops to Bethlehem and gave orders to kill every male child under the age of two. And that would have included Jesus. But what did the angel of the Lord do? The angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, take Mary, take Jesus, go to Egypt, and when I tell you that the coast is clear, I'll let you know and you can come back. Herod the Great died not very many months after this atrocity occurred at his command. He was, Jesus was a victim of slander. He was called an illegitimate child. He was called a drunkard, a glutton, a demoniac. Attempts were made on his life when he went to teach in the synagogue, which was his right as a male Jew in good standing in the community of the synagogue in Nazareth. And he opened the scroll and he showed how the passage in Isaiah was speaking of him. And the people marveled 
until he got to the part where he talked about how that the gospel that he was preaching was not only for descendants of Abraham, but for Gentiles too. And it really roiled the waters. And what they did, they grabbed him and took him to the cliff upon which Nazareth sits to this day, and they were ready to throw him off. There were two ways to stone someone, the way we typically think of throwing stones. Another way would be to take a person to a high precipice and push that person over, and that person would die by hitting the stones below. That's what they were seeking to do to Jesus. But amazingly, just as surely as God the Father parted the Red Sea when Moses put the staff of God, the rod of God, over those waters and they miraculously parted, that crowd parted and he and his disciples walked through without any harm done to them. He went to Jerusalem twice to the Feast of Tabernacles once and the Feast of Dedication when there was an attempt on his life. Jesus was one who was acquainted with a lot of conflict. He never ran from it. He faced it. He faced the ultimate conflict when He went to the cross. And we who know Christ, the Bible says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it's purposeful, the persecution of God. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities of this dark world, the powers and principalities of Satan. Jesus didn't avoid conflict. The peace of Christ can't be cultivated in a vacuum, but in the crucible of conflict. This matter of following Christ causing us to encounter conflict sets peace apart from the world's peace, which is a counterfeit peace, as we've seen. The world's peace is circumstantial. If you're healthy, wealthy, and influential, and have strong relationships with others, you'll be peaceful. The world's remedy, prescription, when you are encountering lack of peace from the world's point of view, is a change of circumstances. Change jobs, change mates change neighborhoods, things like that. But the problem is that when we go somewhere else and we have that thinking that's incompatible with the teaching of Christ about real peace and God the Father, then we still have ourselves to deal with. The problem is not external, it's internal. We have to have the peace of God in our hearts. Peace isn't escapism. It's not retreating. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. But He's also the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We read about it today. The more intense the conflict in your life as a follower of Christ, the greater the possibility for your being more pure of heart. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Do you want to see God? How do you get there? You have pure of heart, purity of heart. How do you get purity of heart? By following Christ and doing what He does and doing His work. Christ's peace is not 
the absence of conflict. His peace is His presence. The presence of the Prince of Peace. Jesus gave the Father control of His life. We touched on it. If you want to jot some references down, John 5, 19 and 30, go along with what we read in Romans, I mean, excuse me, John 14, 10. He did what the Father commanded Him to do is what He said in verse 31. He never disobeyed the Lord. He never did anything except what the Father gave Him to do. And though He being very God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, becoming obedient to death, even death on a wicked cross, so that we could live a life to glorify God and a life that can be peaceful because we're in sync with God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's no accident that one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, the third one is peace. That is our birthright. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us. And the birthright of peace is ours if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. What's involved in our giving Christ control? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith comes from hearing and how? Hearing the Word of God. We come to the Word of God. We hear the voice of God. Then we obey what God says. God didn't give Moses the Ten Suggestions. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And we have to be men and women who don't look for loopholes, but we take it for what it says about who we are to be. And we love to obey the Father. Don't you love it as a parent when your child grows and matures to the point where she or he says, what can I do for you, Mom? What can I do for you, Daddy? That's awesome as a parent, isn't it? We work hard and long to cultivate that kind of attitude in our children. God's Spirit works in us. God the Father wants us to relate in just the same way as Jesus did. Remember when Jesus was asleep in the boat and His boat that He was traveling in was filled with sailors and they couldn't get all the water out and they thought they were going to drown and they woke Him up and He didn't say a word. He just stood up, didn't speak to them. He spoke to the wind and to the Sea of Galilee. He said, hush. Be still. The word hush is a word which was used to describe the muzzling of a wild animal so the animal could not bite. Hush. He's talking to the devil. He's saying, hush. Be still. And what happened? Immediately, according to the people who witnessed it, the sea was just as smooth as silk. Totally calm. We can expect victory if we live by faith and not by sight. If we obey the Lord, trust the Lord, we will get victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Even your faith is what 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil, the master of upheaval. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, 33, this is what Paul wrote that our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Don't you love that? God is a God who brings peace 
in the individual heart, but in a body of believers' heart. We need to become more like Christ, not just for our own personal benefit, but for the broader body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ could walk into the teeth of conflict because Jesus was sure of God's providential protection and presence. I'm going to try to be quick and at the same time thorough at this point as we finish. We know that the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians that we're to rejoice always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Wow. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's awesome. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've heard from me or seen in me, Paul said, do it. Put it into practice. He says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's the great role model for us. Paul is. And so that is a beautiful thing. But how can we do that? How can we not be anxious? How can we rejoice? How can we praise God for bad things as we would describe them? Here's the key. Please get it. One simple little sentence. The Lord is near. Jesus was in the boat, wasn't He? He was the one who rescued them. He was walking at a later date on the Sea of Galilee when they were in a storm again. Jesus was there. If Jesus were here, do you think He could bring us peace? If He is in your home, do you think He can bring peace to your home? If He is in your school, can He bring peace to your workplace? Yes. And if you know Him, He is wherever you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And it's just a question of whether we understand this last thing that I'm going to share. Peace is based on the provision of just the right amount of adequacy we need to deal with the chaos. And then, in addition to that, learning and knowing how we can appropriate that, make that our own. We know we have the adequacy. Jesus, He's the super adequate one. But the Holy Spirit is given to us. This is why Jesus says, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper that He may be with you. He's our helper. And He re helps release the power of God in our lives. We have to listen. We have to believe. And we have to obey. And when that happens, we have the capacity. Each one who knows Jesus here. If you don't know Christ, you're out of luck. I don't believe in luck, but it's the way I'd say it. That can be easily changed. Give your life to Christ today. If you're tired, sick and tired of being stressed out, go to Jesus. That doesn't mean retreat from the world. Jesus does not retreat. He charges ahead. Arise and let us go. 
That's what Christ says. But we need to understand that. Trust in the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, to control you, and use you to glorify Him. David, a man who knew his share of problems, many of them self-made, just like ours, by his sin, he wrote the 37th Psalm. This is what it says. Beautiful. That Psalm says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Insert woman if you're a female. The steps of a good woman are ordered by the Lord. And though she fall, she will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds, upholds him by his hand. And the picture that draws for me is a picture of a, an adult parent holding the hand of a beloved toddler walking. You, you've done this if you're a parent. And it's fun, isn't it? To watch your child learn to walk and they'll slip. And, but you've got their hand, don't you? Where are you if you know Jesus Christ right now? He's in you. But where are you? You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And you are in His hand to be exact. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. That's the Lord's place that He has for you and for me. And He is more than capable of giving us the peace we need and the understanding how to deal with stress when it comes. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for Your Word. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for helping us to understand it and prompting us to obey it. May our church become ever more like Christ. May we all have this longing that won't go away to know You more intimately and to serve You more gladly. And for those who don't know Jesus here today, oh Lord, open their hearts so they may know You. Open their eyes that they may see. Open their ears that they may hear. And that they would gladly receive Jesus today as their Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen.